Warning. This episode covers a number of sensitive topics focusing on and around pornography, so you should put the little ears away before you go any further. And to my in-laws, please skip this episode. We all need to be able to look each other in the eye at family gatherings, so don't make it weird. What was that quote? Like, I'll know obscenity when I see it. You remember? It's like a Supreme Court quote. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. We're reading comics here. Stop being so highbrow, Mike. (laughs) I know. God. Hello, welcome to 10 Said Takes, the podcast you stuff under your mattress one episode at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the oligarch of obscenity, Jessica Frazier. I'm already losing my shit, so we're starting off strong. <laughs> as always, the purpose of our podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We always look at the weirdest, the coolest, and the silliest moments as well as how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you could rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that really helps with discoverability. Friendly reminder, we've pulled all of our content off of Spotify, as the platform is continuing to actively promote voices that spread vaccine disinformation. And finally, we would love to have you join our community on social media. You can find us as Tencent Takes, all one word, on every platform. Today, we're going to get a little naughty and talk about Debbie Does Dallas, the film, the comic, and the mystery surrounding both. But before we do so, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? Well, at the suggestion of my friend Amanda's children, and herself, if we're being completely honest, I started watching Avatar The Last Airbender, which, again, I know, I'm super behind on media. This is my first time watching it. But it just wasn't ever something that, like, I sat down to watch. I don't know. It just wasn't. My brother was really into it. It's really Yeah, like, we've all really enjoyed the hell out of it here in this house. Yeah, it's really sweet. And I'm still in the first season of the show, but I really like the journey that all three of the main characters are on, both their like shared collective journey as as well as their own personal growth that's happening throughout. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to continue watching it. I, I just want to see how it goes. And they also showed me some of the comic books in the universe. They're really good reads for all ages. Yeah, they're great. What about you, Mike? <laughs> I wound up grabbing a bunch of bonus borrows from Hoopla, which are basically they don't count against your borrow limit in the app, because I had to take Sarah to the doctor recently. And so I wound up spending a couple of hours killing time in the parking lot. And one of those borrows was the first volume of Seven Secrets, which is written by Tom Taylor, illustrated by Danielle DiNicolo, colored by Walter Biamonte, and it's lettered by Ed Dukeshire. I reviewed the first issue for Gay League, but I never read the rest of the series. And so I'm catching up with the first volume now. And it's this very action packed story about a society of warriors guarding these seven secrets and quotes. They're giant MacGuffins. We don't really know what they are yet, but they're just carried around in suitcases and apparently have some sort of like world ending catastrophic power. It's narrated by the child of two of these warriors, and it starts off feeling very much like an anime 
especially with De Nicolo's art. And that said, Taylor is this really beautiful writer and he elevates it. I talked about how much I'm enjoying his series Dark Knights of Steel in Comic Book Couple Counseling's Best of 2021 episode. And his work here is just as good as it is there. Like he weaves all these elements of action and humor and heartbreak really deftly. And I'm already totally hooked. Oh, it's so good when they can take you on a good emotional story. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. So, yeah, check it out if you get a chance. Yeah. As of last episode, we noted that we were starting to feature promos of other podcasts out there that we feel like you should be listening to as we built up a really great support community with a number of other shows, and we want to help them grow just like they've been helping us. So please enjoy this promo and then check the show out if you feel like it's something that you'd enjoy. Hey, this is Ken M. Padawan J. Coach Duffy. From the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. Every week, the ODPH is talking sports, movies, TV, comics, and more. It's always a parlay of topics on each episode. You can find the ODPH on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and wherever you find great podcasts, such as the one you're listening to right now. Don't forget to check out OchoDuroParlayHour.com, where you can find the links to all of the ODPH social media accounts, links to the bands whose music you hear each week on the show, hashtag 607 podcast info, and parlay points, our companion block section of the show. Thanks for listening to the ODPH. Now get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. So as per usual with our show, we can't talk about the comic that we're discussing without discussing some other pieces of history first. So do me a favor. Tell me what you know about Debbie Does Dallas before we talk about it. So prior to this, I really only knew it by reputation and a name. And I've heard jokes referencing the franchise, but I didn't realize it had as much media as it does until you brought it up as an episode. <laughs> I was like, wait, what are you, a comic? I'm right. listening. <laughs> yeah. So I did come into this super fresh without much knowledge, and I'm anticipating this being a delightful and surprising time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's kind of part of the cultural zeitgeist. Like, I was making Debbie Does Dallas jokes when I was in middle school, and I had no idea what it was. Right, exactly. You just knew it was something the adults thought was funny. You know, it's also got that alliteration, so it sticks in your head. Well, why have double Ds when you can have triple Ds? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so Debbie Does Dallas is part of what's called the Golden Age of Porn, which was this period from 1969 to 84, where sexually explicit films were meeting with success at the box office and then also approval from like audiences and critics and just people in general. In 1972, Deep Throat wound up grossing somewhere between 30 to $50 million on a budget of just 50K. The box office take is up for debate. I got to note that because apparently a bunch of the theaters that screened it were actually like mobbed up businesses or you know, oh, connected okay. to the mob somehow so <laughs> you, you know so they say that like the receipts could have been inflated for money laundering purposes which sure eh. all right and then in 1973 the devil and miss jones was actually the seventh highest grossing movie of the year and so we suddenly had pornography being taken really seriously like not only by movie critics, but it was being discussed openly in pop culture, like Johnny Carson and Bob Hope both wound up talking about Deep Throat on their shows. And it was pushing social awareness and then, by an extension, 
some level of social acceptance for pornography, which had up until this point been very verboten. On top of that, porn was, and it still generally is, a pretty low-budget affair. So these major box office returns were starting to provide the funding necessary to make porn competitive with major Hollywood blockbusters in terms of both technical and production values. As a result, there was suddenly a lot of concern that mainstream movies were suddenly going to start getting really influenced by porn. And at the same time, there was a 1973 Supreme Court case called Miller versus California, which redefined the legal definition of obscenity content, and it made it easier for states to prosecute anyone who is like, you know, distributing pornography. Now, one of the major results of this was that the court set out this three-pronged set of criteria to determine whether or not pornography was subject to persecution or regulation. And the biggest one was basically an average person applying, in quotes, community standards could judge the work to be essentially excessively sexual. And that suddenly made it a lot easier to prosecute national distributors via forum shopping. So for example, something deemed obscene in Texas might not meet that criteria here in California. But one of the other pieces of criteria was that the material couldn't have any serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And the trade-off of that meant that pornographic films really started to make use of detailed storylines and film technique so that they could claim that they had artistic merit in case they had to mount a legal defense. (laughs) (laughs) Artistry. (laughs) (laughs) I don't... mm. This dick is a work of art. <laughs> oh, man. Like, like we're going to get into all that. And, yes, we will. I'm sure that had drones been a thing, you know, we would have been getting a lot of sweeping B-roll footage in porn oh movies in the 70s. Goodness. Now, the other thing that you got to remember is that these movies were also being distributed to theaters since home media wasn't really a thing until the 1980s. Now we can actually get on to Debbie Does Dallas. The movie was directed by Jim Clark, and it was released in 1979. And like most adult films of the era, it was produced in the area around New York City. And aside from this new actress on the scene named Bambi Woods, it also featured a number of notable adult film stars from the era, like Robert Kerman, Richard Bala, Robin Bird, Eric Edwards, and Bill Barry. So how would you summarize the film? So Debbie is your run-of-the-mill high school cheerleader who's been selected to try out for a famous pro cheer squad out of Texas. Hint, it rhymes with palace, schmau boys. <laughs> but alas, Debbie is dead broke, and her mean old mom won't give her any money to go. So she has to earn the money herself, and all of her girlfriends decide they're going to earn money and go to support her. Woo! Yeah, because they want to, like, cheer her on, right? Exactly. <laughs> they want to go and support her, right? Hashtag girl power. Oh, yikes. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. But shoot, it's just so darn hard to earn money. They quickly devolve working their normal day jobs to making quote-unquote extra money, pleasing the lechy bosses who ogle them anyway. Now, earning money is hard in a different way. And boy, do they. Also, heads up, these girls are supposed to be 16. Eek. And most of the dudes are easily in their 40s or older. Just yikes. 
I don't know what you're talking about. That, <laughs> that one football player in the shower with like the noticeably receding hairline and handlebar mustache. Yeah. No, he was in high school, Mike. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, you know, you can still be a high school student if you keep on flunking your classes, I guess. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he just he couldn't stick that senior project for biology. <laughs> Yeah, so at this point I should note that because we are dedicated to doing research, we both bought DVDs of Debbie Does Dallas and watched them. <laughs> yes, I am intimately familiar with Debbie Does Dallas and shall we say too many ways. Yeah, Sarah and I wound up watching it together on the couch and I mean like we'll talk about this later on but like there were a lot of jokes. Like we, <laughs> we were definitely, I was cackling. yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you, <laughs> I think the only way that you can enjoy it now is ironically. Yes. Yes. But, but that leads into like my first real question of the evening, which is like, what was your take on the movie? <laughs> well, first of all, three <laughs> words. So much Bush. <laughs> oh God. There's so much seventies Bush. Like, so much. So Bush. much. Uh, God, it was just weird. It was wild. It was a wild ride. But also, like, what a fucking cheese fest. Firstly, the yeah. acting was incredibly subpar. Uh, it is. Ooh. Yeah, that that is. Like, I'm trying to think of who did a worse job acting, the cast of this movie or Chuck Norris reading those moral lessons at the end of his cartoon. Oh, gosh. Yeah. No. Ooh, that's a toughie. I, I don't even think I, I can choose. I don't know. Honestly, I don't think I can choose. <laughs> No, it was pretty awful. And the situations were so out there and they were so staged and so uncomfortable. And there were some like these really like creepy and coercive moments in the film that made me really uncomfortable. Like that one girl kept being like, I don't want to get involved. And then they basically like talked her into it. And then she was like, great, this is great. And I was like, that is horrendous and you're gonna wake up seven years from now and be like i was sexually assaulted so that's cool are you are you talking about the candle shop scene uh more like just i mean the problem there is, was is that like, you're not there really was narrowing that... it down because like no, there's, there was, there's a couple like, of scenes that are like that so yeah like it, there was like just this one girl was like i don't want to earn money that way who was like she mm. kept being like the naysayer of the group every time they got together Everybody else was like riding dicks and she was like, I don't want to earn money that way. And then they basically got her to. And I just was like, this is awful. I hate everything about this. Well, so I mean, that was a very common plot line back in adult films this year. And like the other thing I is, no, I just hate it. Oh, it's, it's gross. But uh, the other thing is this is a bunch of individual scenes that have kind of a very yeah. loose plot overall. And it's basically an ensemble cast. So you're seeing different people on screen who basically show up for the locker room scenes is kind of the meta narrative, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, the other thing is that the DVDs that we got, it is very clear that whatever transfer process they did was not good. I get the impression that these are not transferred off the original print that was distributed to theaters and stuff because it's super pixelated. And then the other thing is the audio is terrible and there's no subtitles. I was more mad about that than anything else. I'm like, <laughs> I can't understand anything. I can only hear out of one ear these days. Oh, no. I crippled myself with a Q-tip last year and I was I was big mad about the fact where I'm like, I really want to know what they're talking about and I can't understand it. Seriously. Ugh. Yeah. 
No, it was bad. Yeah, I had the same experience. And, you know, the cover is all printed. Like, somebody just, like, typed it out on Word and were like, this was oh, great. Yeah. Let's just do it this way. It's fine. It's got everybody's names on it. It's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not they're spelled right, we'll not worry about exactly. that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing was... Like, again, there were all these weird situations. Like, the one woman working at the record store literally told the guy that she quit her last job because the boss was, like, advancing on her sexually. And then the yeah, guy was like, she... oh, perfect. So you already know how this should go. I'm just going to casually grab your boob immediately. Yeah. Like, I remember that. She said, like, he was getting too handsy or something, my old boss, right? Like, something like yeah, that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then he immediately was like, I'm sorry. Are these titties? My hands just kind of found them. <laughs> Like, what are uh, my bro? Yeah. She what literally the words out of her mouth and your hand was like right there. Why? Yep. Why? Why is that a thing? It was just like the complacency or active participation of the female partners to these creeps was even stranger. It just didn't really make sense. I hated how the girls were like, oh, I don't know. Just give us however much you want. It's like. <laughs> Okay, you have that... no self-respect at all. And like. <laughs> Sarah and I got really mad. We're like, you are bad at business. You talk about Literally. how you the business. And then you're like, I don't know. Pay what you want. It's like, no. You set a fucking price. <laughs> you are contractors. You demand half up front and half on delivery. Like, girls. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, they made all the women out to be like complete airheads. But it's like they're starting a company. So it's, I mean, it, I'm like. Listen, hashtag boss babes, I guess, but they're again, they're bad at this. I mean, they got the one dude to pay for it all. So it's like, whatever. Yeah. You know, the other thing is the women really do not look that into it. No. Like Sarah, (laughs) we were watching it and Sarah had a great line. She's like, the face on all the women is the face that a woman wears when she goes to the gynecologist. I'm like, yep. 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 (laughs) I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Let's get this over with. <laughs> yeah. It was. Ugh. Yeah, that was exactly it. Like the light left their eyes. I was like, this is awful. Oh. Oh, yeah. No. And the other thing is they were not being paid well for this. Like, I think Bambi Woods got like $400 and she was the headliner <sighs> in this movie. And and I mean, residuals. <sighs> you know, that was not a thing. You told me that earlier today and I got ferociously angry like <laughs> i about it. i was no i'm i'm still angry like i i had to stop thinking about it because i was just like i can't fucking believe that this is such a cultural like just like a cult following at this point if we can call it that. i don't know maybe yeah, it's not no, like it, rocky horror picture show but like whatever it is in certain ways like a cornerstone of american culture like it is very much a part of cultural discussion and we'll we'll get to that later on but you know she got paid 400 bucks and i don't know how much she made for appearing in the sequels but probably not a lot and sarah and i were talking today about it just as we were walking the dogs and she pointed out that the adult film industry was an industry that really found its success by exploiting its female workers and oh yeah You know, that's part of a larger discussion of things like Hugh Hefner and Mm. how it got better for a while because there was equity and then it dropped off again when there was the rise of free distribution via the web and stuff like Mm. Pornhub. But now it seems like it's getting better again because of OnlyFans. I don't know. It it's not a subject that I know as well as I would like to after having done the research for this episode. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the whole movie 
was like, tell me you hate women without telling me. Oh, yeah. No. And for fuck's sake. Also, it's just kind of wild how like not sexually appealing the movie was like. Yeah. I mentioned how we couldn't stop laughing at it, like for multiple reasons. But one of the big things was like the guys were so unattractive, like almost unilaterally. There were a couple that were like decent, but. Yeah. Like I mentioned that balding guy who's passed off as like a teen football player. Or there's <laughs> there's Robert Kerman who was like this veteran of the porn industry and he found some mainstream acting success later on. And I think he was in Cannibal Holocaust, and so he kind of became like a keystone in like horror film culture. But he plays Debbie's boss, and the guy is like I don't know. I just I was expecting someone better looking for the climactic sex scene. For, yeah. And pun definitely intended there, but it's just not who I would have expected that scene to be with like i don't know man maybe shave your back fully before we have to spend so much time watching it like (laughs) well here's the thing the guy has to be the average guy so that you can put yourself into that position so you can put yourself into that mindset i thought about it when i was watching it i was like all these guys are fucking norm they're fucking they're just some like normy ass middle-aged dudes and the reason is is because that's their fucking dream is that they can like hit some high school cheerleaders from the back i guess i i guess i man i like sarah and i when we got to that library scene where the librarian catches one of her friends hooking up with her boyfriend and <sighs> he brings her into his office i was like oh man i don't i really don't want to see old man dick i'm sorry yeah i had I had the remote like in my hand and I'm like, we're skipping the scene <laughs> if, if it gets to this and it, you know, and it stays at the, like he spanks her and whatever. And but, like, she's literally saying, no, I don't like that scene either. I like forgot it. I like mentally took that out of my brain. So, well, it's back. Sorry. That's okay. Here we are. Folks, we watched it. So you don't have to. <laughs> so the other thing that was actually kind of interesting is that that library scene wound up being like the library scene with the friend giving her boyfriend a blowjob in the middle of the shelves was actually pretty controversial because it was believed that they filmed it at State University of New York Stony Brook. And so there was like actually a whole investigation with alumni and the president of the Debbie Does Dallas production company. And they said that the claim was like not true or it was inconclusive. But yeah, it was like a real contentious point. Puritanical drama. Like, yeah. I don't know. It just, everything about that movie and, and its casting really kind of unintentionally drove home the fact that the movie's core plot line is there's this town full of like lecherous adults taking sexual advantage of underage teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like Sarah at one point was like, yeah, that's gross. She's 16. And I'm like, what? She's supposed to be 16? Ew. Yeah, no. They say I'm it like, at one point. They say it. She says it at one point. I'm 16. No. And I was like, like ooh, I was just, barf in my mouth. Uh, it's so gross. It's so gross. Like, anyway. One more thing about the movie is that, fun fact, it actually passes the Bechdel test for what it's worth. Oh, does it? Well, yeah, because they have a whole group of women. They all have names. Okay, so the yes, Bechdel test, they... for those of you who are not familiar, it's the idea that women, you know, having a conversation amongst themselves about something that doesn't have to do about, like, a relationship or a man. Yeah. And hopefully they have names. Yep. A lot of times they don't. So they all have names, and they're all having a conversation about getting Debbie to the cheerleading tryouts. And they're all congratulating her. 
and they're all having a conversation about the cheerleading. Yeah. So they, it actually passes for what it's worth. I mean, that doesn't make it a good movie. <laughs> it I mean, doesn't make it a good movie. It doesn't make nope. it a feminist icon, but, you know, it passes that piece of it surprisingly. I just figured I'd <laughs> throw that in the mix. <laughs> All right. So we've got our feelings out of the way. So, <laughs> well, for the moment. They'll, yeah. They'll, yeah. Come back. They'll come back. Yeah. Okay. The movie itself was actually pretty controversial as soon as it hit theaters. Like the Dallas Cowboys themselves actually sued over the, we should note, the mimicked cheerleader uniforms, saying that they were infringing on their copyrights and the Pussycat Theater in New York was actually prevented from screening it. I looked up the history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and the imitation that they use in this movie is not far off from the outfits <laughs> of the time. Even though I think in the movie they're like, Debbie is trying out with like the Texas cowgirls. But yeah, it's, it's like, oh, okay. And similar, yeah. They really relied heavily on that element for their marketing. Like, I sent you the trailer, and she's like, I was a Dallas Cowgirl, and this didn't happen, but it could have. And you're like, what? <laughs> okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So there was actually another New York court case in 83 that wound up finding the movie not to be obscene. And the movie wound up doing gangbusters on home video. And apparently sold like 50,000 copies, which made it the most successful video release of an adult film in that era. Wow. And, like, first of all, that's like insane because like... That's a lot. <laughs> VHS players at the time, I think we're going for, I want to say six to 700 bucks, like give or take, <sighs> which like that's around $1,500 these days. Like they were a real luxury item. But the other thing is that VHS tapes weren't cheap either. I don't know how much porn flicks were actually going for at the time, but Hollywood films were really expensive. They were running like 80 to 100 bucks a pop on VHS. And the only reason I know this is because my parents loved to tell the story about how when I was a kid, I loved Mary Poppins so much. They bought it on VHS and I watched it so many times that I actually wore it out, which meant they had to go buy another copy of Mary Poppins at like 100 bucks. So That's crazy. I didn't yeah. realize that they were that expensive because I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, I, I was born in the, the middle of the 80s. And so right. by the time we were getting movies, we had a bunch of VHSs and they were all with the puffy, you know. Yeah, the puffy cover. I remember that. So at the same time, the rights around Debbie Does Dallas get real murky. And this happened like as soon as it was out of the gate. The company M&A Associates owned the rights and then they entered into a global distribution deal with a company called VCX. And the thing is that the movie was originally screened without a copyright notice, and VCX wanted to cover their bases with copyright protection. But the copyright protection had to be added to the theatrical prints, too. And M&A refused to do that for I don't know why. Yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm like, this sounds like a dumb idea. And it turns out it was. <laughs> because VCX had hired a couple of lawyers to work on the copyright stuff. And they basically were like, well, the copyright's lost. So that led to VCX terminating the deal with M&A. But then VCX kept on distributing the movie. Okay. So, th so they were just distributing and selling <laughs> it, but they're like not paying royalties. And then that actually led to a 1987 court case between the two companies. And it actually was determined that Debbie Does Dallas is in the public domain. Holy shit. Yeah. And so like, that's the then only why can't note that you find it anywhere. I don't know. It's really weird. And the funny you thing and is I that if you scoured look... for it before we like actually broke down and bought that thing. 
I didn't yeah. want to buy the D. I didn't want to. D- I did not want the Debbie Does Dallas DV in my collection. Like, wild, if anybody right? wants to borrow it, you can. Like, I'm. It's not going to be like one I just pop in. But I am going to leave it on my shelf now that I have it because it's absolutely a conversation piece at this it's point. Crazy. And <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, and the other funny thing is that if you're watching the DVD, they have a, a notes section. And the only note is that, like, this movie's in the public domain. That's literally it. Like, it's like, <laughs> per this 1987 court case. And I'm like, well, I already knew that, guys. Thanks for nothing. Like, I was so over the D. I almost went and checked that out, but I was like, so over the DVD by the time it was done. I was like, ah, I need to turn off the TV. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, though, that might actually explain why it's so hard to find it's because the Dallas Cowboys apparently still hold veto power over publication oh. of the film due to the trademark stuff or they did like 20 you. years ago because it's mentioned in this book called Ardor in the Court Sex and the Law by a guy named Jeffrey Miller. I don't know if that's still the case, but I mean that could explain it. Mike, do we need to free Debbie? Free Debbie. Hashtag free Debbie. Hashtag free Debbie. Hashtag shit. free Debbie. Oh man. Everyone get the shit going. But the other thing is that when the Debbie Does Dallas comic was published in 1991, the property was considered to be part of the public domain, but if you look at the title page for the comic, it says that Debbie Does Dallas is copyright of some company called Video Exclusive, which I was hosed when I was trying to search for that on Google. <laughs> exactly. I was like, the face I was making was like, mm, video exclusive, huh? Yeah. yeah it's, you know. <laughs> Sounds legit. <laughs> Like, I don't know what the Sounds deal like a was. company that's going to send me, like, an email with stuff misspelled. <laughs> Be yeah. instantly suspicious. <laughs> All right. So now we can start talking about the comic. Well, sort of. Oh. So, okay. The Debbie Does Dallas comic was published by a group called Aircell Comics based out of Ottawa. And Aircell is actually in itself a really interesting imprint. They were originally a foam insulation manufacturer before the government ended its contract with them in the mid-80s. and then. This one employee named Barry Blair convinced the owner to pivot to comics publishing. Like, okay. Like, why not? You know, that's a pivot. Yeah. Well, you got to remember indie comics were doing gangbusters business thanks to the success of your favorite property, the Ninja Turtles. Oh, love that. And Blair himself has a pretty interesting story, and he was also a pretty controversial figure when he was active in the industry, honestly, like we could probably do an entire episode on him, like without covering anything else, but he wound up becoming the publisher for Aerosol comics. And he was involved in a ton of their books, which you know, at the time were pretty interesting. The initial titles were Elf Lord, Dragon Ring and Samurai. And they featured an art style that was based on manga, which was really new here in the States at the time. And then it also started the careers of some pretty big names in the industry. Dennis Bove had this really cool painterly style for a heavy metal style comic called Warlock 5. And then he would go on to do cover art for D&D books. Fantasy writer Charles DeLint was also just starting out in his career. And so he wound up scripting several books. And then Dale Keown began his professional comics work there before becoming a major illustrator on The Incredible Hulk and then moving over to Image Comics where he created the character Pit. And then later on, Aircell also published the original Men in Black series. But the imprint really started to make a name for itself by publishing erotic comics, which was a genre that had really started to surge in the 80s thanks to the popularity of the underground comic scene. 
Now, honestly, like erotic comics seem like they were actually more popular in the 80s than they are now. I talked to Brian from Brian's Comics and Tom Bayland over at Outer Plains, and both of them confirmed that neither shop stocks these types of books, and they don't really get orders for them. But on the flip side, erotic comics that are being put out now feel a lot more, for lack of a better term, artisanal. One of my acquaintances, Dale Lazarov, runs his own imprint called Sticky Graphic Novels, and he sells his books at cons. And to be honest, they're legit works of art. They're oversized. They're on glossy paper. They are beautifully illustrated. They're also very explicit. But if that's what you want, it's absolutely worth the 40 to $50 price tag that they command. But I also know based on his post that he's had a tough time getting into cons sometimes and that people often make snide comments to him at his booth. And that said, that high quality limited quantity approach isn't that uncommon these days. There's a really interesting podcast on Audible from a few years ago by John Ronson called The Butterfly Effect, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it actually focuses on how pornography has changed in the last decades thanks to the internet and free distribution and piracy of porn. And it's really fascinating, but one of the focuses on how some pornographers are making ends meet by effectively working with wealthy clients for specialized commission videos. And, you know, it feels like porn has gotten less stigmatized as time's gone on. Sarah used to work at a video rental store and was telling me about how they had the back room with a curtain for porn. And then it was always like super awkward when someone was told that they couldn't check out the movie until they returned it or paid their late fees mm. for like, <laughs> like really filthy porn when they were there so trying to awkward. pick up like a movie for their kids. <laughs> Jeez Louise. <laughs> They're like, sorry, you have Debbie does dial us out. We're going to need you to pay that late fee. You've had it for five weeks. Well, okay. And imagine it coming from 17-year-old Sarah, who, like, uh. Sarah is this very petite blonde woman. And just imagine her as a 17-year-old and then being like, I can't rent this movie to you because Ass Blasters 3 is out and overdue. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh man. my gosh. But anyway, like, you know, porn is now so widely distributed via the web. It's a much more accepted part of our society, but it's also still something that's extremely judged a lot of times. And when I was researching this episode, I started asking around in the comics groups I'm a part of about Aircell. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but like, I spread my net really wide and I had no luck. Like, Basically, no one wanted to respond to me that I'd actually worked with the company or had any real insight. But one person, Mark Asquith, who was a manager at the Silver Snail in Toronto, and the Silver Snail is one of the oldest comic shops around now, and it was pretty much the prestige comic shop in Toronto at the time, was able to give some circumstantial perspective about Aircell's popularity. With the exception of a few books like ElfQuest and Cerberus, I used to order very small numbers on the first issues of black and white books, a dozen or so. But then Comico Primer did well. Then Dark Horse Presents did even better. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles changed everything. It was selling 300 plus copies every issue. To put that in perspective, we were selling about 50 Avengers and 40 Conan. The High Water Regular Monthly was 2,000 X-Men a month. Anyway, we started selling roughly 300 copies of every Aircell book. Woo! Yeah, so they were doing okay for a little while. Mm-hmm. And that said, indie comics got hit pretty hard when the comics market contracted in the late 80s, and then publisher Malibu Comics wound up partnering with Aircell 
which eventually led to Aircell focusing more and more on erotic comics. And then Malibu took ownership of the imprint and Blair officially left Malibu slash Aircell in 91. So the Debbie Does Dallas comics started hitting the stores when he was bouncing from that company. And that said, this is a lot of background info, but I feel like all of this was pretty necessary in this particular case. So the Debbie Does Dallas comics had this rotating cast of creators associated with it, but the ones that I found most often in the credits were Dennis Clark and Valdir Fernandez handling art duties, and Ben Harkins and John Cocktoston on the writing. But there's very little info available, really, for most of these creators, which leads me to think that they were using pseudonyms. That said, Dennis Clark illustrated some other erotic comics in the same era before he went on to have a, from what I understand, a fairly significant presence in the furry community. But yeah, but he's like basically scrubbed his presence from the web in the last few years. So I don't know what's up with that. I I don't have a lot of background info for the series, unfortunately, and I would have loved to find out how this whole thing came to be, especially with all the licensing rights and how those were handled. And I searched for all the people involved and reached out to anyone who I thought might have been the right folks, and I never heard anything back. I even tried to get a hold of Chris Ulm, who was Malibu's editor-in-chief at the time the books were being published, and he and I actually have a couple of mutual connections on Facebook because he works in video games now. And I never heard back, like, from anyone. Hmm. So, you know, maybe at some point we'll get some more details from someone, like, and then we can have a part two for this episode where we can actually talk to the people who worked on some of this stuff, but we're going on a little extra blind and it's a little more kind of armchair supposition than (laughs) verifiable fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel it. Okay. So we've got all this out of the way. How would you summarize the Debbie does Dallas comics? Like if you were going to do an ad for one of those 900 numbers that were really popular in the nineties when this got published, like how would you do it? Oh, sure. Hey fellas ever wanted to be with a cheerleader? How about several? A whole team? Debbie. Debbie does Dallas is right up your alley, and you might be right up hers. Come for the bouncing cheerleaders. Stay for the cum, if you want. Call 1-900-69-69. Oh, man. I love it. So good. (laughs) I will do voiceover acting. If anybody needs voiceover work, I'm completely untrained, completely <laughs> untrained, which I feel like I have something going for me with that. You I absolutely do. That was great. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. All right. So, I mean, like, there's no way to really get around it. Like, these are hardcore adult sex comics. Like. Mm-hmm. They're not particularly deep. They largely focus on Debbie and her friend Midge and the various kind of zany adventures that they get into. They don't actually do a lot of cheerleading. There's sort of a little bit of a a meta narrative about them working as cheerleaders at the beginning, but then it, you know, Mm -hmm. it falls off pretty quick and they start doing a bunch of other stuff. And it's funny because as I was reading through this, I felt like it was one of those beloved 80s sex comedies that just hasn't aged particularly well. Like, Yes, there were some funny and interesting moments, but there was also some that were really uncomfortable and I could feel myself cringing so hard that I thought my spine was going to break. And I'm curious, what for you was the best moment in the series and what was the worst? So I I read ahead and you and I are very aligned this time. We are very aligned. 
I loved issue 13. (laughs) That was their whole meta narrative of like, Debbie knows that she's in a comic and she's the only one that knows she's in a comic. And she's like, that writer's an asshole. It was very good. Well, and the other thing was that was one of the issues that was illustrated by Fernandez and he had a, a very realistic style, but it was also, it was way better than it had any right to be in that comic. Yeah. Like his, I'm assuming it was a, a he, but his artwork was too good for that series, to be honest. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. That was absolutely my favorite. It was witty and, you know, I liked how, I think this was the the issue where it was like, oh no, we've reached page five and we haven't even seen a tit. Like, (laughs) hurry. And then there's like a hardcore sex scene, like the next frame. It's like, this is what you came for, folks. (laughs) Well, yeah. And then it gets increasingly meta where, you know, originally it starts off with them realizing they're in the comic book and then they start asking the artist for various sexual partners based on their specifications, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, kind of funny. And then after that, there's a note from the writer basically saying, ah, I ran out of time. So like, please just fill in the word bubbles. Like, you know, like have fun. And then the next page is the artist saying, uh, I ran out of time too. So here's a bunch of blank panels for everyone to draw in. And then I think like the last page, like, you know, I think it's Chris Ulm, the editor in chief. He like pops his head in and he's like, what? I, yeah, sure. This is great. This is why everyone's buying this series. Like a bunch of blank panels. Maybe next issue will be better. And he like storms off. It was, <laughs> It's weird and it's funny and like I really actually kind of dug it because it was very tongue in cheek and I felt it was clever. I mean, the rest of them were just all like very tropey and like, you know, we're at a campfire, you know, we're at a slumber party. It was like all of these different tropes. Like, I mean, they overplayed like that whole delivery guy situation. Like that whole issue was like how many delivery guys and they have just like trucks of delivery guys lining the street it's just like okay yeah we get it that's like number one Mm -hmm. (laughs) well you know and then the other one that was actually really good was the final issue where debbie and midge reveal themselves to be aliens and they basically like zip out of their skin suits and they're just like yep like we uh we came here as kind of advanced scouts and now we're gonna like make sure that the earth is gonna be blown up after we eat everyone at this like pornography set that we're at I thought that was really funny. I was like, yeah, all right, this is fine. I'm on board with this. Like I I was reading it in bed with Sarah and I'm like, Sarah, you're not going to believe this. And I told her about that. And she was just like, I, this is amazing. I love this. Like, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a way to end. If you're going to end things, (laughs) that is, that is an ending. Well, yeah, but on the flip side, like there's some definitely uncomfortable moments that feel very racist in this comic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, aside from the one that we're that we both had problems with, there was also the one where they wind up on kind of a, a remote tropical island and they deal with a vaguely African tribe that hasn't really been in contact with, like, the outside world except for one guy who was sent to Yale or something. And it's very uncomfortable. It's that it feels like that jungle fever trope. I don't. No, yeah, no, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that is what it feels like. Um, it's gross. It's, it's really re- gross. It's really gross. Yeah. And also the, you know, it's, it's people of color and they're drawn in kind of exaggerated ways. Mm-hmm. And it's just, everything about it is just really, I, I don't know how to put it. It's just, it's really bad. 
And that was throughout, like any time they had a person, and this happened like quite a few times, like yeah. quite a few times, where it was like this person is evidently not supposed to be a white person. And so yeah. they either have like a small dick or they are incredibly hairy when it's like you saw that movie. Oh, yeah. So really, like... we're going to portray other people negatively in that way when that was like on brand anyway for the 70s. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, it was always very body shamey if they didn't look like, you know, models. And yep. like, there is the one where one of the characters is sleeping with a couple of judges. And it's not revealed that they're judges for a contest. And like, at the last minute is when we get the payoff for that storyline. But like, one of the guys is he's a normal looking dude, but like, they really make him out to be awful. And it's super uncomfortable to read. And like, you know, I, yeah. But the other one, which you hinted at, is issue five, where the women are on a flight to France. And then there's this whole side plot about an Islamic terrorist. And I'm not making this up. His name is Assholem Fakir, threatening to blow up the plane. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a number of demands, and one of them is his own 7 Eleven. It's and, really fucking gross. And then. None of that comes to be because Debbie saves the flight by stripping down and seducing him and he drops Trow and then he gets knocked out while he's distracted. And one of the final jokes of the story is that he's crazy because he has a micro penis, you know, har, har, har. It's. Yeah, it uh, just obsession with size and this thing was just out of this world like honestly like there were so many different things where it was like let me tell a story about somebody whose dick was too big let me tell another story about this guy on a beach who like comes up and just pulls his dick out and it's this huge dick and so you like totally like ditch the guy you're with i it didn't i don't know like (laughs) and there was only one type of woman oh yeah like hands down that's that's it there was one type of woman yeah and you know, granted, we're talking about this 30 years later. Like, these books are 31 years old. I think, actually, like, at the time that this episode is dropping, it's going to be, like, right around the 31st anniversary for the first issue. You know, and societally, humor has changed since then, as have, you know, conversations about, like, you know, body image and consent and, and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. But this is media that has not aged well. Nope. Yeah. So that's the Debbie Does Dallas comics in a nutshell. You know, we're not going to sit there and break them down issue by issue or or anything like that, because really there's no point. They're one-off sex scenes, like in each issue. That's good, because I couldn't parse them up at this point if I tried. I couldn't either, honestly. Like, I'm like, I don't know. It's all running together in black and white, just penises and machines. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes. Well... The funny thing, though, is that, you know, it's kind of crazy that the series ran for 18 issues plus a couple of specials, which, I mean, like, that's kind of nuts. So long. There's a lot of licensed products that didn't do nearly as well. Like, none of the Marvel Star comics that were based on Saturday morning cartoons lasted that long. Like, hmm. But yeah, you know, the final issue was dated March of 93, which was right around the time that Malibu was making serious moves into mainstream comics with their Ultraverse line, so it makes sense that they were starting to reduce their erotic offerings. And then this was right around the time that there was also an increased focus on media that kids had access to. The parental warning label had just really started getting put on music albums. There was a lot of concern about like adult content in video games, and this was right in the middle of that crazy speculation bubble that we've talked about in the past. 
when comic sales were just insane and then the bubble burst and you know there was a giant implosion within the industry but aircell basically shut down in 94 when malibu got acquired by marvel and i guess that means that debbie does dallas comics are technically part of the marvel catalog so okay shit that changes everything they're in the marvel universe right like is debbie benton like the disney princess nobody wants to talk about these days oh my fucking god she is though Right. She's that cousin that nobody wants to like acknowledge that never gets invited to the family reunions, basically. Holy shit. We need to free Debbie so bad. Hashtag free Debbie. (laughs) Hashtag free Debbie. (laughs) That's going to be part of our social media this time. Hashtag free Debbie. It better be 100%. (laughs) Okay. Now, this isn't the last that we heard of Debbie Does Dallas, though. Like the movie had a couple of direct sequels, which we didn't watch. You can buy part two on DVD or Blu-ray if you want, but they're not exactly cheap. And I guess part three just isn't available on disc. So I would also like to note that my Amazon suggestions are getting real awkward after all the searches that I did ahead of this episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> hmm. I hear you. I did that Chuck Norris episode and now I'm getting nothing but gun ads oh, in my email gross. account. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the things that we put ourselves through for this show. They're trying to bring me back. They're like, Biden for guns. I was like, you're confusing me. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Chuck Norris isn't supposed to be about guns. Like, it's always weird to me where it's like, he he wrote that one article, like, trying to link, like, the Boy Scouts to, like, dirty money and, like, this whole conspiracy. And it was in, like, some ammo magazine. Like, whatever. Oh, jeez. Anyway, like, back to Debbie Does Dallas. So based on the summaries I found online, part two... Bambi Woods actually comes back as Debbie after she doesn't make it as a cheerleader. Like she doesn't pass the tryouts, I guess. And she moves in with her aunt who runs a brothel. And then part three is apparently just a bunch of random sex scenes without a coherent story. But I guess Bambi Woods returns to do an on-camera interview and then provides some narration. But yeah, one of the biggest parts of the meta narrative surrounding Debbie Does Dallas is actually... The mystery surrounding Bambi Woods. She's only credited as an actress in the Debbie Does Dallas films. And then she essentially she just up and vanished after those were made. And she went on record in interviews by stating she only did the movies so that she could earn money to pay back a friend she owed money to. And then she worked as an exotic dancer in New York after the movie came out. I think I sent you that interview. And it did. Yeah, it's real awkward. Like it's super awkward. I mean, like she seems really not comfortable with her celebrity as a porn star but she also seems very strung out based on how she talks and and her mannerisms and i mean like sarah and i were watching the movie itself and we were just like she seems strung out based on all of her delivery of dialogue yeah she seems really out of it yeah and she vanished shortly afterwards and nobody's really ever heard from her since it's become one of those unresolved mysteries in pop culture and In 2005, there was an Australian newspaper called The Age, which claimed Woods had died from an overdose in 86, which based on the footage that we saw and everything else, like that seems believable. But at the same time, Channel 4 did a TV documentary that same year called Debbie Does Dallas Uncovered, and it specifically focused on Woods and her disappearance. And it's not streamable these days, and it's a pretty expensive DVD to buy, so I'm relying on secondhand accounts on what it covered. But apparently it features the director of Debbie Does Dallas, Jim Clark, saying 
that a private investigator had tracked Woods down in the 90s and was informed that she was like living this quiet life in Iowa and didn't want to have anything to do with her previous life or career as a porn star. And then at the same time, a site called YesButNotYes.com, which I've never heard of before this, so, you know, sounds legit. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, they conducted an interview via email with someone who claimed to be Woods, but they couldn't actually confirm the identity of, but they were still like, we have an interview with Bambi Woods. And it basically disputed everything in the Uncovered documentary, so who knows at this point? I personally hope that Woods did get the fuck out of town and wound up having a quiet life and, you know, got a happy ending. But I don't know. It's a mystery. But regardless, the franchise has continued. If you search the internet adult film database, there are 12 Debbie Does Dallas movies. Holy shit. Yeah, it's kind of wild. And then on top of that, I'm not sure how many of these are official spinoffs, but if you search for just Debbie Does, there's like 38 movies in total. So it's still a thing, even though the most recent of these was from like 2009. And then meanwhile, a group called Terminal Press made one more Debbie Does Dallas comic in 2008, which was apparently an exclusive for the Adult Film Expo, but there were only a couple hundred of them made. So I have no idea what the comic's actually about. The cover is like pretty tacky. It's Debbie basically getting groped by zombies and yeah, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a relic of the time, but You know, it's actually funny because I discovered that Terminal Press was actually based in Petaluma and the owner still apparently lives nearby. But again, this is one of those situations where I reached out and then never heard anything back. So I don't know. I'm going to keep pestering people and we'll see if we can score an interview. But, you know, until then, I think this is going to be kind of the final word on the Debbie Does Dallas comics for a while from us. You know, Debbie Does Dallas is this infamous property that is really well known, but there's all these kind of like factual gaps and mysteries surrounding it so it's basically i don't know like i it's schrodinger's porn (sighs) but yeah that's debbie does dallas and her associated comics do you have any final thoughts before we sashay out of here well i gotta say it was exactly what i expected it to be (laughs) like when i say exactly i mean eggs fucking exactly what i expected (laughs) Scrambled exactly. So, a precise. Precisément. Yes. <laughs> All right. What do you say we head on over to Brain Wrinkles? That's fucking mosey. Okay. We are now at the point where we discuss our brain wrinkles, which are the things that are comics or comics adjacent that have just been stuck in our head for the last couple of days. Uh, you want to start? Oh, sure. So, Mike, as you know, and now our listeners will as well, And I have been very quickly growing my comic collection, like, at an alarming speed. And part of this was the bargain short box I got at Brian's a couple weeks ago. But I also have had some folks, very generous folks, give me comics. They were like, I already was going to get rid of these. You have this interest. Would you like these? And I'm like, fuck yes, thank you. It's actually really cool. That's been happening to me more, too. I I like being that person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm always like, I mean, I'm pretty recently fresh to comics. And so anything people throw at me, I'm like, yeah, let's check it out. Let's see what's happening here. So it's fun. But I am most excited about this new collection that I am starting. And that is Elvira. And I picked up DC's Elvira House of Mystery number one. So I'm stoked to start looking for more of those around. 
and it's supposed to be here like this week. It said today, but it, it, it it's not here yet. Nice. Elvira's house. You can hear the anticipation in my voice. <laughs> yeah, that's rad. Yeah. No, I mean, we should absolutely do an episode talking about Elvira and her presence in comics, but House of Mystery is really interesting because, like, you know, House of Mystery was like an anthology horror series from the 50s through the mid 80s. And then they ended it with Kane, the biblical Kane, getting evicted from the house. And then Elvira's House of Mystery is Elvira is brought in by the house to find Kane. So I guess she's technically a part of DC canon comics continuity, as well as the Sandman continuity, technically, because, you know, Kane and Abel are there. Yeah. Holy shit. Can you? Okay, wait. Oh, mm. Elvira and Wonder Woman. Be great. That's fucking sexy. I ship that so hard. This needs to be a thing. Elvira, hit us up. We want to talk to you about comics. Oh, that's just sexy. We gotta we gotta get going. That was too sexy. <laughs> <laughs> None of the Debbie Does Dallas did it, but that one image I fucking hook. I love Elvira so much. One of the final movies that I got to watch with my grandma was Elvira Mistress of the Dark. And oh. she was this like woman in her i don't know 70s or 80s in texas and like she thought it was one of the funniest things she'd ever seen my mom still fucking cackles about that final scene where she's got the spider tassels and stuff like you know elvira is everyone's favorite goth aunt that like you know we all want to like just have in our family Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah so yeah that's me but what about you well i mean so also you know anyone that's listened to the show for any amount of time is not going to be surprised but I've recently started picking up like 90s crossovers from DC Comics because I'm in that prime demographic now for nostalgic reading. And, you know, some of the crossovers are collected into like prestige omnibuses. They've got like, you know, really beautiful bindings, new covers, like glossy pages. But what I've realized is that DC never collected a bunch of the crossovers from this era into single volume. So, like, I'm talking about Armageddon 2001, which I've mentioned on the show. I'm talking about Eclipse of the Darkness Within, Bloodlines, and The Final Night. And sometimes you'll find a volume collecting like the main storyline, but it's kind of worthless because you don't have all the tie-in issues to fill in the plot holes that are, you know, left open. And it's actually, it makes me pretty sad because a lot of these stories are really fun, like warts and all. But I'm not sure if they're ever going to get collected and, you know, in quotes, remastered. And it means it's just going to get harder and harder to get a hold of these stories as time goes on. And I think a lot of new readers will miss out on them. So just, you know, Mm. something that I've been thinking about as I've been getting my orders in from eBay. Yeah. Yeah. eBay. That's been my friend recently, too. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So on that note. We're going to take off, come back in two weeks for a mystery topic hosted by Jessica, who will cut you with a K. I will cut you so hard. (laughs) Yeah. Until then, stay safe out there, and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald, 
and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is tencenttakes. Jessica is Jessica with a, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau. V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.